This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome our new celebrity guest scorer, host of the Most Writers Are Fans podcast and author of Tyranny of the Fae, Terry Bartley. Hi, thanks for having me. Terry, with all new guests to the show, we'd like to ask a few questions to allow the audience to get to know you. So just first, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and why you love movies. Yeah, so like you said, I'm a, I'm a podcaster and fantasy author. So my podcast, Most Writers Are Fans, is about, right, I interview other writers. And we just kind of like trade stories about writing and being an indeed creative and all the struggles that that is. As a fantasy writer, this is my debut book, collection of short stories set in the same fantasy universe. So it's, it's a good time. I've, I'm excited to see what people think of it. I love movies because I think that I've always just loved stories. Um, I've always been really fascinated with stories in any form, whether it's, you know, a movie, a TV show, a book, a video game, whatever. I just love kind of like really delving into like different stories, especially like character driven things. I just really, really love. So I think that movies have always been a big part of that because I I think it's just an interesting medium because you have to tell a interesting and compelling story in a very limited time frame. I think that really applies to most of us. So then what is your favorite movie and why? So I'm, I'm a big nerd, so like anything magic or superheroes is are things that I love. Anything MCU, I sort of could mention here. But I also am a big musical fan. So I'm going to name uh, Disney's Enchanted is one of my favorite movies of all time uh, with Amy Adams. Um, she's great in it, and also the music numbers are great, and it just has a really happy feel to it. Yeah, that's one we haven't gotten on the show before. It's always interesting to hear you know the wide variety we get to the answer to that question. So what makes a good movie for you? I just really love to feel something, you know, like if I get teared up in a movie, then I feel like it's probably pretty good because it's done something to connect with me on a really personal level. Um, I love movies that study what it is to be a human and like just interesting experiences that sort of show different perspectives on that, which I think is true of like any kind of creative work. But I think that movies are especially good at doing that because you get such a personal look at people. Yeah, and I love to be moved, too. It's a great attitude to have. So let's move to our movie of the evening. Tonight, for our 164th episode, we discuss the 1993 thriller The Fugitive, directed by Andrew Davis, screenplay by Jeb Stewart and David Toohey, starring Harrison Ford as Richard Kimball, Tommy Lee Jones as Deputy U.S. Marshal Sam Gerard, Celia Ward as Helen Kimball, Joe Pantoliano as Deputy U.S. Marshal Cosmo Renfro, Andreas Katsoulis as Frederick Sykes, Jerome Crabbe as Dr. Charles Nichols, Daniel Roebuck as Deputy U.S. Marshal Bobby Biggs, Tom Wood as Deputy U.S. Marshal Noah Newman, L. Scott Caldwell as Deputy U.S. Marshal Aaron Poole, Johnny Lee Davenport as Deputy U.S. Marshal Henry. He doesn't even get a last name. Boy, that's, that's sad. Julianne Moore as Dr. Ann Eastman. Ron Dean as Detective Kelly. Joseph Casala as Detective Rossetti. And Jane Lynch as Dr. Kathy Walland. Recognition for this movie? The Fugitive was released on August 6, 1993 in the United States. 
It quickly became a summer movie sensation, opening strongly at the U.S. box office, grossing $23 million in its first weekend from 2,300 theaters, taking the number one spot off of Rising Sun and surpassing Unforgiven to achieve the record for having the biggest August opening weekend. For six years, the film would hold the record until 1999, when it was surpassed by The Sixth Sense. Overall, The Fugitive grossed $368.9 million on a budget of $44 million, becoming the third highest grossing film of 1993. The film received mostly universal critical praise, and audiences surveyed by CinemaScore gave the film a rare A-plus grade on a scale of A-plus to F at the time. The Fugitive would receive seven nominations at the Academy Awards for Best Picture, Cinematography, Film Editing, Original Score, Sound, and Sound Editing, and Tommy Lee Jones would win for Best Supporting Actor. Jones returned as Gerard in a 1998 spinoff, U.S. Marshals. That movie also incorporates Gerard's team hunting an escaped fugitive, but does not involve Harrison Ford as Kimball or the events of the initial 1993 feature. The American Film Institute would later recognize The Fugitive at number 33 on its list of 100 Years 100 Thrills, and The Fugitive currently holds a 96% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, an 87 score on Metacritic, and a 3.8 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So we will start here as we always do every week. Dad, what is your relationship to this movie? (laughs) Uh, Saw it at the theater. We were uh, about to move from one city to Wisconsin Rapids where we are in that general area. And uh, we were looking at houses and you were just uh, like, oh, not quite three and a half. And your sister was a newborn. And so your mother said, oh, let's go to a movie. We ran out of houses and we can go see a movie before we go back. And uh, Allison, who has been a guest on the show numerous times, was a baby and, oh, she'll sleep. Well, she didn't. She just whined and cried because she was a nasty, fussy baby who uh, fought sleeping whenever she could. We ended up, I had to drive around town with her in, so I missed half the movie. Then I came back and sat down, we're watching it, and then... She started crying again, and then we got thrown out of the theater, so your mother took her, and they sat out in the car and waited until you and I got out of out of the film. So she didn't see the end. I didn't see the middle. I think we rented it after that so we could actually say we saw the whole film. Terry, do you have as memorable a story? <laughs> no, believe it or not, this is my first time watching it. Um, this is a movie that like I've always known existed, you know? I was seven years old in 93, so like I don't think it's surprising I didn't see it when it was it came out in theaters. And it's just a thing that I've always like it's one of those movies that you hear about in the nineties that is like a big deal, but I never actually like sat down and watched it. So yeah, this first time. Okay, great. Yeah, I always love getting kind of fresh views on things. I think this is only the second time that I actually recall watching it, because I don't from when I was three <laughs> couldn't tell you a damn thing about the movie. And it's been kind of a pop cultural reference point for a few different things, you know, in the the decades since. But it's not one of those movies that is vastly memorable. I would say comparatively, even though Harrison Ford's a big deal in the movie, he's probably known for being Han Solo, Indiana Jones, and the president from Air Force One more than he's remembered for being Dr. Richard Kimball. So then, what is this movie about? Uh... 
well, classic story. Man wrongly accused and goes on a quest to vindicate himself or exonerate himself. I think it's just an extended chase scene. You know, even you get a few moments where it will lighten up, but that's only just enough for the cops to come running again after you. He's only very few steps ahead of them at any one point in this movie. Well, the scenes where he's actually trying to discover who caused or who actually the murderer was are just points of tension relief. Because otherwise it's constant tension. And I feel like there were a lot of themes of like, the incompetence of law enforcement. Like you see a lot of like small town cops sort of like struggling or not paying attention or sort of like grazing over the, the killing. And I feel like that's maybe part of it. And then also, you know, this idea of how, how much people in government don't actually care about the things they're doing because like Gerard has a lot of lines of how like he doesn't actually care about like the truth. He just wants to do his job. And that feels like maybe a theme that was ongoing throughout. Yeah, I could certainly buy into that, given that I'm not sure that he he doesn't care about doing his job well. I just think his job is not to care about the things he's entrusted about. And so that's that's an interesting spin. And part of the reason that I think he's effective in this role is really what springs out from that one line. You can kind of get a sense for the character very early on where you get the monologue about the hen house outhouse and whatever else type of house. And then he uh, runs the one guy off to get him a chocolate donut with some sprinkles. Between those two comments, you know exactly who this guy is, like right off the bat, and it's just cemented inside the sewer. Well, to a large extent, it's how people within the criminal justice system behave, because, I mean, 17 years, I've made comment about that. I did criminal defense work. And... You know, people would ask, how could you represent some somebody who's guilty? Well, I never at, or I never went to a trial with somebody that was guilty. If they told me they were guilty, I told them they either had to get a different lawyer or we would cut a deal. If you told me you didn't, then fine. You know, I'll give you a trial. And the the whole point of it is, is I didn't care whether they were guilty or innocent, really. I'm doing my job and I'm going to do it the best I can and be passionate about providing a defense, the prosecutor should be doing the same about getting a conviction. The judge should be doing it impartially, and the jury is charged with making the decision. And if everybody does their right or does their part or their role correctly, you should have justice. And so that's more than anything is what Tommy Lee just... I've just been charged with pursuing a guy who's already been convicted. So I don't care whether he thinks he's guilty, innocent, what took place. I have my role and my duty. I'm going to fulfill it. I think one of the other important themes that stood out to me was kind of how much personal freedom we take for granted when there's this guy who's on the lam and he's got to find all these creative solutions of things to try and stay out of prison, essentially while also investigating, it just draws that kind of contrast. And that's pretty evident for every time that uh, he's in that basement dwelling with, I don't know, was she Russian or Polish or whatever woman that was, whatever descent she was, or when he first goes to the hospital and he's basically taking the guy's breakfast 
away from him off the the hospital tray. Yeah, and a lot and a lot of like when your back's up against the wall, when you have no other choice, what will you do to kind of survive? You know, to, to yeah to stay out. So why is this movie so engaging? I feel like the story itself is pretty compelling. Like the the idea of a doctor who was wrongfully convicted and then goes on a mission to sort of exonerate himself and or avenge his wife. Truthfully, the, the motives were not clear to me. <laughs> they were doing it for his own reasons or because he wanted to avenge his wife. We didn't really get into it in the movie. Um, but I think that the story itself is pretty compelling and, and sort of this idea of somebody going on his own quest to like discover this mystery and, and solve his wife's murder, I think is really interesting. I think it's very well done where there's no fat on the movie at all. Other than the first couple of minutes where we're still piecing things together to know why he's even going to prison in the first place or why he has to become a fugitive. After you get basically from the bus crash and the train crash moving forward, the movie just moves at a momentous pace and keeps you kind of rolling. It'll have a couple of moments of levity, but as you mentioned, Dad, I think that's just to kind of break a little bit of the tension or you would lose the audience. So it just goes from one basic chase scene to the next, to the next, to the next. And by creating kind of these blocks of different chase scenes throughout the movie, you just create a downhill momentum to the point where, really, we get one moment between Kimball and Gerard where Gerard does not basically arrest him on the spot, but says he believes him and then gives him some favorable treatment in the car and the movie's over. The credits roll before, you know, they go and give some big speech or he gets the briefing as to what's going to happen. No, the whole movie is about these two on a chase between each other. One trying to chase down his wife's actual killer and him trying to chase down Kimball. Well, (laughs) I, you know, we watched this on, we were all together. So we watched it with, with uh, mom and actually your grandma, her my, my mother-in-law, who had only, I don't know if she'd ever seen the movie before. I don't think she had, but. Even if she did, she didn't remember it at all. Yeah, which is a kind of a family characteristic. Anyway, watching her watch the movie was almost as fun as watching the movie because she went from sitting in her chair the next thing you know, she's like sitting on the edge, leaning forward, about to fall off because she just is so wrapped up in the film. And I think that the um, the, the pace of the film and the editing is a master class in editing. And I'm kind of foretelling when I'm talking about uh, some of my uh, best and worst and such. But I, this was just phenomenally done as far as the pace of the movie. It knew when to build the tension, when to let it go, when to build it again. And they just, it was uh, a choreographed ballet of film. So would this movie still work in 2023? I don't think it would for a couple of key moments. A scene that struck me that frankly changed my opinion of Gerard and like I couldn't get over it for the rest of the movie was the scene whenever they broke into the the house where the other fugitive was. Um, because, like, it was so similar to what we've heard about, like, Breonna Taylor's murder, you know? The no-knock warrant and, like, shooting without asking. Like, they didn't even, like, ask any questions. The woman was screaming in bed, and they all they said was shut up to her. <laughs> like, no kind of 
um, sympathy for any of it. And, and it was just jarring to, to, to see it represented so clearly on screen. And also just to realize that in the 90s, we knew that happened and no one cared. Well, yeah, all the cops were white. <laughs> I, I think there's a big technology angle of this that would be missing. I mean, with as many different cop procedural shows as we've had on since 1993, and everybody knows, oh, there's DNA everywhere and fingerprints and facial recognition software. I just don't know how much you could go on the lam without being found in a digital world where everybody has a camera and a video recorder on their phone or on their person at any one time, let alone a GPS. DNA evidence on the crime scene <laughs> is pretty significant. That would have, I mean, there would have been fingerprints, DNA, fiber evidence, all kinds of stuff to help exonerate Kimball before the trial itself. Moreover, who hires a uh, like their personal lawyer to defend them in a murder trial? I mean, this is supposed to be a smart guy. I, I would want the biggest, baddest def or criminal defense attorney on the face of the earth, especially when I've got more money than I know what to spend it on. Also, for a doctor of that, like, rank or title or whatever, they're not not having video cameras in their house or at least on the door coming into the house. And I know he probably used the, like, personal entrance, but even that's got to have some type of camera in a modern sense. I just think there are a lot of angles of this that would work in 1993 that just are not working 30 years later. So to that point, I feel like there's some suspension of disbelief that you could take on with this to make it work in a modern context from those perspectives. Because, you know, mm -hmm. she was setting up for a romantic evening, so it makes sense that maybe the cameras would be turned off in that moment. Because, like, you know, like, who okay. knows what they're going to be doing. That's a good point. And then also, you know, I think that the movie was very clear in that there was enough evidence to convict him. Because, like, his, he scratched, you know, like, his skin was in her fingernails which implies that she was struggling. Like his fingerprints were on the gun that was used. Like, I feel like they were making, sending a message to say that like, even if there were other evidence to exonerate him, obviously there was because he exonerated himself later. They, they just wanted to, to like wrap the case. I think they were sort of like making a message about how like sometimes cops just like don't actually care about the evidence if there's an easy solution. And I agree with you there. I mean, if you've watched enough John Oliver, you know that <laughs> they find their guy and they're just going to hone in on this one subject. And that's why people like my dad exist. Yeah, except that, as I pointed out, when people would ask me all the time about OJ, which is his trial happened after this, I kept saying over and over, he'll never be convicted. They kept saying, oh, he's so guilty. I'm going... No, he's got money. He can buy all the best medical experts, all the best forensic scientists, the best lawyers. He can build a defense. All he has to do is raise doubt. He will be able to walk away because he has the money. And the prosecutors are not used to having to deal with criminal defendants who can pay for the best people. So they're going to botch it up. And, and I kept getting these weird looks. Our pastor's wife just kept going, you're, oh, no. And after the verdict came in, I walked into church, and she looks at me, and I went, no, no, told you. 
little Jordan shrug in you? Yeah. All right. Well, let's get some more background on the movie. Dad, do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. The Fugitive is a gripping thriller that keeps the audience on the edge of their seats from start to finish. Directed by Andrew Davis and starring Harrison Ford as Dr. Richard Kimball, the film tells the story of a man wrongly accused of murdering his wife. After a daring escape from a prison transport, Kimball goes on the run, desperate to clear his name and find the real killer. Meanwhile, U.S. Marshal Samuel Gerard, played by Tommy Lee Jones, is hot on his trail, determined to bring him to justice. The film is a masterclass in tension building, with Davis using every trick in the book to keep the audience engaged. The action sequences are expertly choreographed, and the performances of Ford and Jones are superb, with both actors bringing depth and nuance to their roles. At its heart, The Fugitive is a classic tale of good versus evil, with Kimball representing the innocent man fighting against a corrupt system. Thank you. Did you know? Harrison Ford damaged some ligaments in his leg during the filming of the scenes in the woods. He refused to take surgery until the end of filming so that his character would keep the limp. The limp can be seen in any subsequent scene where Richard Kimball is running. Did you know? Andrew Davis only had one chance to crash the train in the train scene and had to get it right, so he consulted an array of engineers, stunt doubles, and the insurance company to predict what would happen. The train was expected to crash into the bust at 35 miles per hour, but the director was in error. The train came at 42 miles per hour. Nevertheless, the scene went exactly as planned. Did you know? The scene where Kimball is running through the St. Patrick's Day Parade was not scripted. This was a later edition by Andrew Davis. Davis, a native of the city, really wanted to capture the parade and was granted permission from the mayor's office to film the day of the parade. The entire sequence was shot with a handheld Steadicam. Without rehearsal, Ford and Jones just went out into the crowd and did their thing, with camera operators running around trying to keep up. Ford observed that since his character was keeping a low profile, it meant he himself didn't stand out much and lasted several minutes in the crowd before being recognized. Did you know? Originally, Julianne Moore's character had a bigger role in the film, even after she exposes him briefly. Kimball was to have sought her out for her help, and eventually fall for her. These scenes were filmed and deleted from the final cut of the film. This is the reason that her name is still credited as one of the main stars of the picture. Did you know? According to the director, Tommy Lee Jones originally argued that his character being concerned for the welfare of innocents around him, would not fire after Kimball inside a crowded building such as the courthouse. The dispute caused a brief delay in filming, but the director finally convinced Jones to do it as scripted. Did you know? This was the first American movie shown in Chinese theaters in over 40 years. Audiences accustomed to local movies were blown away when they saw it, and it became a huge hit there. Did you know? The picture of Richard Kimball on the composite from medical school is actually Harrison Ford's yearbook picture from Ripon College. He almost graduated in 1964, nine years before the picture was said to have been taken. And with that, we'll take our first break and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we are revisiting one of the most rewatchable movies of all time, just in time for Memorial Day with A Few Good Men. Directed by Rob Reiner, written by Aaron Sorkin, starring Tom Cruise, Demi Moore, Kevin Bacon, K. 
Kevin Pollock, and Jack Nicholson. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Best performance is next up. Dad, who do you have down? I have Tommy Lee Jones. His uh, character is multidimensional. It is the glue that, that holds the film together for the most part. There's a reason why he got Best Supporting Actor, and he deserved it. It was a phenomenal job. I actually have him as my best secondary performance, but Terry, who did you have? I have Harrison Ford as my best performance because if he, you know, he carries the movie. Um, the, it, I think that had he been less convincing in like the opening scenes and like that opening scene where he um, has to sort of mourn his wife, but also be concerned that they're pinning the murder on him. I think he did a really convincing job of that. And that's a lot of emotion to kind of hold at the same time, which I think he did pretty well. I, I think he did it. I wish they would have given him more to do in the movie, like more emotional things. But I think that what he did do was very well done. I think he had to play a more complex set of emotions. Tommy Lee Jones was just a dog chasing a car the entire movie. And he was really effective at it. But at the same time, you know, I guess maybe if you want to count that he has to go from not caring to caring to being kind at the end and empathetic of the whole situation. Maybe that's a character arc and a journey of somebody, I guess, who kind of turns into a hero by the end of it. But even so, I think Ford has the tougher job because he's got to play this mixture of constant fear and vulnerability while also maintaining this air of, you know, he's going to figure things out and that he's smart enough to keep dodging everybody and be believable. It can't be just that he narrowly escapes. Otherwise, it's going to seem somewhat comical that he slips through the fingers. No, it's got to be somebody who can you would believe being on the run and be effective at doing so. So for me, I went Harrison Ford too. Tommy Lee Jones is my best secondary because he just does that character extraordinarily well. I mean, he played it again. He'd go on to play other cops in other movies. I think he has the pivotal scene in No Country for Old Men. And so it's just kind of defined who he is as an actor is the lawman since this movie. Best secondary for you, Terry? Yeah, same. I also went Tommy Lee Jones for best secondary. I feel like you can't not give him some credit for this. Like his, I think his performance makes the movie so memorable. And I mean, you know, he was nominated for an Academy Award, right? So like, obviously <laughs> it is well regarded as a good performance. So I definitely would give him secondary. He He's definitely a driving force in this movie. Dad, did you go forward for secondary performance? No, I didn't. Interesting. Okay. I have Dennis Verkler, David Fintz, or Finfer, Dean Goodhill, Don Brucher, Richard Nord, and Norv Honig. They are the editors. That's a lot of editors. Well, they did a hell of a job because... I, when I came out of the movie, I thought, wow, this is the greatest editing job I think I've ever seen. And then watching it m multiple times since, and then again this week, I am convinced this could be one of the best editing jobs of a film as far as pace and such. You know, shot to shot, I'm not paying that close of attention. But from looking at it as just how you develop pace and how you go about putting it together, man, this was uh, just a perfect film for editing. I could have done without a few moments early on in the film and tried to move up the 
scene where he escapes a little bit sooner. But even so, I, I, this movie kind of rolls in a way that I think like even Shawshank does of the time. There's there's a lot to be said about 90s movies and their pacing, because once they hit a certain point, they gather enough momentum to just carry you through the rest of the film. I think to an extent, our movie that we're going to rediscuss next week, A Few Good Men is like that. Once you get past the scene where there's the code red and that very early on sequence and Tom Cruise is brought in, that's about the jumping off point and everything from there becomes a rewatchable movie. The reason why they do those scenes early and it's slow is because the audience has to build a relationship with the character that's going to be chased or be the center of the conflict so that you have some empathy, some desire to see him or her succeed. So you have to set it up that you can see how injustice is being done. I actually agree with both of you in different ways. I feel like I agree with you, Tom, that it it felt slow in the beginning and kind of like, why are we doing this? We don't need, because they just had to establish that he was arrested. And it was a lot to kind of throw all at one time and quickly and not really like um, thought through. But I feel like that's more of a writing problem. So, So like to your point, Dana, I think that it was necessary. But I think what I would have liked to have seen was us maybe start with that like bus scene that was so exciting and then get flashbacks in a lot of these like quiet moments whenever Harrison Ford's character is like, you know, like sleeping in the, like, like whenever we cut to the the dreams he was having when he was in the forest with the leaves on him, it was like, what is this? Like, these are just random moments. Like, why can't this be something more substantial than this? Like actually show their relationship. Yeah, I agree with you there. I thought that was a weird choice for that particular moment. I'm glad they cut out a lot of the other scenes where he supposedly develops further relationships beyond what he was with his wife, because I think it takes away a lot of the meaning of him trying to pursue his wife's killer. And that does explain why, like, it wasn't clear what his motivation was, you know, (laughs) because if he was in love with another woman, he may not care as much about avenging his wife's death because he's moved on from that relationship. So so maybe they didn't write it that way because it originally wasn't written that way. I don't know, Dad. I I look at something, another movie that I'm going to bring up later as a comparison point to the way this film is structured that it really reminded me of and kind of thinking about this today. It's a favorite of yours and mine, North by Northwest. It takes three minutes for that movie to just kind of jump in and he's Kaplan and he's mistaken and they're taking him away. This movie probably could have done pieces in flashback as he's kind of on the run that are small little drop-ins as opposed to him doing that all at the beginning. And I actually think it might've been a little bit more effective, but even so I think the minute you step on the bus and you see the plan being hatched by the other inmates on the bus, you can already tell this movie's gathering pace. And that's really the jumping off point. Literally. Yes. Most charismatic, I had the director, Andrew Davis, because I think he established more tone than anybody and kept a sense of what the pace was going to need to be, was able to get all-star performances out of his two leads, and create a fairly effective movie out of what I think at the time was probably a throwaway project. So I think for all of those reasons, he's got to at least be in consideration. I mean, we slid off the podcast talking about why this is an engaging movie. If that's not charismatic, I'm not sure what it is. 
Okay. Dan, what did you have as a creative entry? I, I just know you have it waiting for us. No, I actually have Harrison Ford. Simply okay. because this is the time that Harrison Ford really started to go from being just kind of a pop icon to being a movie star. And that he had a presence in films. I mean, he did a series of films that he just seemed like he kind of became bigger than the films themselves after. I mean, up until then, he had done a couple of other films other than the Star Wars trilogy. I don't know. I just thought he uh, he just looked the part and was able to convey the part of being the Hollywood star. You're saying that the guy who literally was part of one of the biggest and longest-running number one hits of all time in 1981 was not a movie star that early? Well, okay. I mean, Indiana Jones and he are synonymous to the point where Disney has now said they will never recast the part. And I think that will only last maybe about eight years. Well, of course. But I feel like you could... You could argue that Indiana Jones and Star Wars are both what we call genre movies, whereas this is very clearly like an action blockbuster kind of movie. So you could make an argument to be made that this is kind of like his transition into like these sort of like big picture blockbuster things. I just remember an interview that Jimmy Stewart did on Carson years ago where he talked about the fact that until Winchester, what was it? Winchester 76, I think was the name of the film, was his first Western. Until he did that film, he never felt like he was a true Hollywood movie star because he was always pegged in certain genres. He couldn't transcend and be in different things and be a star. And so once he was able to become a Western star, he felt he could control and do anything he wanted to in Hollywood. This is a guy who had, before The Fugitive, played Jack Ryan in a movie. He'd been in Working Girl. He'd been in Witness. I mean, it's not like he had had a mediocre career in the 80s. I don't know. I just think this really portrayed him in a broader light that was extremely popular. I don't remember how many people actually saw Witness, for example. All right, let's move to best scene then. My, my most charismatic. <laughs> Terry didn't give... Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped you. I I apologize. <laughs> you were so distracted by Harrison Ford being a movie star. Um, Yeah, so my most charismatic was Julianne Moore. Because, you know... Oh, like, okay. I, I mentioned how I was so turned off after that one scene. And I felt like she was sort of like this bright spot. And a bit of like positivity. And also a bit of character development for Harrison Ford's character that we really didn't get a ton of. And I really appreciated kind of like seeing another character's perspective of him from the outside. It does give a rare moment of motivation that he still has, I guess, the calling of a doctor, the do no harm. I thought that was interesting that he goes out of his way and takes an extra chance that he doesn't need to, to fulfill his higher calling. Yeah, and I really appreciated that. And then also Julianne Moore's character kind of like calling him on it, like noticing it. Right. Well, and... I don't know. I feel like she's even conflicted when she's interviewed about it because she is obviously called security and tried to make a big deal. But her last line is, is, well, he saved the kid's life. Yeah, which I mean, is interesting to know that she had a bigger role originally because that explains why that was such a compelling moment that we then never really followed up on. Yeah. Then we get Jane Lynch's character instead. 
Right, which he also apparently was supposed to have some romantic role with before it was cut. <laughs> and I love Jane Lynch's character, too. I also feel like that was a bright spot in the movie as well. All right, now we can move to best scene. So I have the flashback opening, which we kind of mentioned. I have the escape, so with the train crash and the rest of it, and then him trying to flee into the woods in the first images of Gerard. Then we have the dam chase. I have the investigation, which is when Ford first comes to Chicago and he's kind of able to get in and out of different hospitals and he's piecing it together because even that has a sense of momentum to it. I have the do no harm scene that we were just talking about. I have, I guess it should probably be courthouse instead of city hall, but courthouse chase. I have finding Sykes when he gets into the guy's apartment and kind of flips the narrative on its head and then the police start to actually figure out, okay, there might be more to this than we thought. And then finally from confronting Nichols. So everything from about the ballroom where he starts walking up to the podium up through basically the ending where he's shot, I would say is, is memorable. So is there any piece that I kind of missed that you guys would like to highlight? No. Okay. Out of these, what do you think is the best scene? I have the damn chase. The two that I felt like were the best, and by best, I don't mean like the most interesting. What I what I mean is like what this movie is, you know, in a lot of ways is like a big action set piece. Like those are the things that are like what this movie is supposed to be, right? So the ones that really stuck out to me were the the bus train scene. Like that was like a really exciting like scene. And then the stairway chase scene I thought was also really fun to watch, like in the courthouse. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have the train crash, you know, the escape scene, simply because it was so well done. It was exciting. There was tension building. I mean, the visuals were phenomenal. I mean, there was so much about it that had to be done and done precisely that I, I just, I don't know how often you would be able to pull that off that perfectly. Well, when thinking about this movie, you know he has to go on the run, but there's still some doubt in your mind as you see the train approaching. You're like, how the hell is he going to get out of there in time? And just the doubt that seeps into your mind, just even that small instinct, even though you know in the title of the movie he's got to survive, at least for a while, creates enough of that tension moments that it is a rewarding scene. And really the first, I would say, front of seat moment in, in in the movie well and i think just the idea that the audience is sort of realizing the premise and just like the situation that his character is in it seemed like he kind of just wanted to like keep his nose clean and, and go on to prison at that point but then like that happens as far as he knows the other guards are dead what does he do here no one's gonna believe that he was just like like he's, he's gonna sit there and wait <laughs> like what's he gonna do right so, so i think that that was an interesting tension that as an audience member you had to like consider through that scene. Yeah. And I think by putting yourself in his shoes, which you kind of do throughout his entire time as a fugitive, I I think it makes it fairly effective. And Harrison Ford is enough of a a kind of everyman, even though he's much more rugged and handsome than the general population. It, it still creates a, a certain sense that, okay, what would you do if this happened to you? Yeah. As far as favorite scene, I have the investigation down. Oddly enough, I find that every time he is trying to find the killer or he gets 
you know, further into his investigation, he uh, narrows down the search of the one-armed men in Chicago that he can kind of look up. Or anytime that he's in some records building or he's interviewing the guy on the other side of the glass in prison, I actually thought those were pretty effective scenes. And it brought the quality of the movie up for me, even though really the movie's about the chase. It's those inner or in-between moments that keep the connectivity going that I thought were really quality and probably shouldn't have been. So I actually enjoyed those at times a lot more than some of the chase sequences, even though those are the thrilling parts of the movie. Favorite scene for either of you? Yeah, for me, it was a Julianne Moore hospital scene um, and specifically the, the him saving the kid moment, because I think, as you mentioned, it, it gave some character insight. And I'm a, you know, I'm a big fan of character driven stuff. So I liked sort of like getting these insights into his character and, and sort of seeing who he is as a person beyond like being a fugitive. I thought that was like, that's what makes it my favorite. Good point. For me, we had had earlier where, um, where Dr. Nichols says he's smarter than you. You'll never catch him. Okay. And then we go to this scene where he's in Sykes house and he's like, why is he calling me? I mean, why would he? And they're running a trace. And it's like, oh, yeah, he's smart enough to know that the way you're going to catch him is not me telling you that this is the guy. Is I'm going to just leave the phone go long enough, knowing you're going to be tracing the call, and you're going to show up here. And as a result, now, you have him pegged as the one-armed guy. And you're going to have to start looking at this critically because... You were put into this situation, and it's all Kimball's doing. So when you talk about him being smarter than you, I'm going, yeah, that was a smart thing to do. And he did it. It doesn't seem like he came up with that idea beforehand. It wasn't premeditated. It was something he thought of while he's sitting there looking at the film or the photos of Sykes and the Devil and McGregor people. I just thought that was a, a really good scene that shows the level of sophistication that he had in understanding where and what was going on. A level, though, I would admit, of sophistication that was a little lacking when, when he is taken in to the police department for questioning. And starts immediately talking to them without representation being there? Yes. And at no time did I ever hear the uh, Miranda rights being provided. So, okay. But anyway. Most indelible moment? Yeah, so I said the sewer pipe jump scene. Because I feel like I've seen that referenced so many times in other pop culture things. The moment of him jumping off of the pipe, I think, is just something that you can't get out of your head. So yeah, that was that was the moment that was my most indelible. Yeah, and the dam. Oddly enough... And this is going to seem antithetical to everything we've discussed in this entire section of the show. It's the opening like 10, 15 minutes for me because of how like plotting and slow it was that that somehow sticks out more for me than the rest of the film. Because the rest of it just kind of blends together. It's like one full swoop for what, 90 minutes or whatever it is. But the first 15 minutes has individual sections and it's so kind of wonky and clunky at times with how they flash back and flash forward and 
go through the trial and the rest of it. Not to mention that there were a whole bunch of those like moments of flaws, such as me screaming at the TV. Why are you talking to the cops? Kind of like having a uh, semi-drunk conversation with you after midnight. When is the last time you've ever seen me drunk? It's been a while. I was going to say. Anyway, this is a good opportunity for our second break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our Master Greatest Movies of All Time list that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to RonnieDuncanStudios.com and find it as the top entry on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast show page. That has the grades we've done so far for all 155 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Doyle Brunson, 89, American Hall of Fame poker player and World Series of Poker champion from 1976 and 77. He is the person credited with really popularizing poker strategy for the average person and essentially creating a lot of the players that became the poker boom of the kind of early 90s, late 80s, into the second poker boom, I would say, of the early 2000s when it really started to take off and it was on TV everywhere. Terrence Hardiman, 86, English actor, was in Gandhi, Sahara, and Mask of Murder. Jacqueline Zeman, 70, American actress. She was uh, in uh, soap operas primarily, General Hospital, One Life to Live, and The Bay. Yeah, she was on General Hospital for over 30 years and some 500 episodes. I think I did see that her last episode has officially aired, but that's just ridiculous amounts of time to be associated with one thing. Well, I I actually, well, back when I was a kid and I had babysitters over the summer because my mother worked, they would watch soap operas. So I used to watch some of these once in a while. And so I remember her from some of these soap operas and specifically General Hospital. So we remember these here for their contributions to the arts and to entertainment with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Let's move to best lines. I'll do the obvious one first. I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. Yeah, I'll go with the follow up to that. Yeah, that's right, Richard. I don't care. I'm not trying to solve a puzzle here. Biggs, Sam, are you out of your mind? He's dead. Sam, that ought to make him easier to catch. Gerard. All right, listen up, ladies and gentlemen. Our fugitive has been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground, barring entries, is four miles per hour. That gives us a radius of six miles. What I want from each and every one of you is a hard target surge of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, henhouse, outhouse, and doghouse in that area. Checkpoints go up at 15 miles. Your fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. Go get him. Gerard, how's the boy doing? Dr. Ed Eastman, he saved his life. Kimball, when I came home, there was a man in my house. I fought with this man. He had a mechanical arm. You find this man. You find this man. Renfro, when I die, I want to come back just like you. 
Gerard. Oh, you mean happy and handsome? Kimball. He falsified his research so that RDU-90 could be approved and Devlin McGregor could give you Provasic. Gerard. Dr. Richard Kimball, there's no way out of here. Richard, the entire building is locked down. Give it up, Richard. You don't have any time. Chicago Police Department thinks you're a cop killer. They'll shoot you on sight. I know you're innocent. I know about Frederick Sykes. I know about Dr. Charles Nichols. I'm out. So am I. I got one more. Okay. Dr. Nichols, you never give up, Richard, do you? You never give up. Dr. Kimball, why Helen? Let's go to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. Dad, do you want to go first or second? I'll take it. For the industry legacy, I mean, they created a sequel with some of the characters. It kind of started a run for Tommy Lee Jones throughout the 90s into the early part of the decade. It got him an Academy Award and a few other nominations. I couldn't give it anything higher than the industry than a four because it was not a awards darling. And there was some criticism of, of the movie and the depth of the characters. The public... Unfortunately, I think this kind of has lost luster. It's hard to find on. It was on a lot originally, and as time has gone by, less or fewer or people will know it, but fewer people have seen it or remember it very well. But there are some who are tried and true and really love the film, so I went with a three for the public for seven total. I have mostly the same comments. I will say from a legacy standpoint, I don't think that the awards attention garners as much, but I will kind of focus on that if this was a much better industry supported movie, I think it would be one of these movies that transcends the 90s in the way that A Few Good Men, Pulp Fiction, Shawshank Redemption, Goodwill Hunting, Titanic, you know, certain films have transcended the 90s as like the top 10 most essential films of that decade because I personally believe the 90s is up there with the 70s and the 50s as competing for the best decade overall of film. It's a completely different era and I have this theory about every odd decade actually being better than the evens decade and because the evens are always this transition between major periods of peak film but even so this movie while very good very memorable at the time it just has kind of lost steam, both from an industry and audience perspective. My only difference is, is that you gave it a four for industry as well as me. I gave it a four for the audience, though, because it still has its supporters. And I, as much as it's lost steam, I just don't see that everybody's out in this movie. You like this movie, but even so, it's still something that's around and part of the memory. And it's not like you can say The Fugitive and nobody knows what you're talking about unlike probably our last two films. <laughs> yeah, so Legacy Within the Industry, I, I agree with a lot of what you guys said. I gave it a four. And I feel like a big reason for that is that it sold so well. Like, it, it did so well in the box office. And you could really see its influence in a lot of other movies made in the 90s after it. Um, as far as the public, I gave it a three for similar reasons to what Dana said. I, I think that it is perceived well. Like I said, I knew it was a movie that existed. Like, I had never seen it, but, it, like, I knew of it as a good popcorn movie. Like, that's how I, like, thought of it. 
And I feel like people around my age feels that way. But I feel like a lot of like the younger generations probably have no idea what this movie is. And I think that part of that is also you have to remove some of the technological advances from it, especially because we're so close to the Internet and cell phones and the rest of it that uh, it's kind of hard to remove a lot of those technologies from kids and make them understand there was a world before the internet. Yeah. All right. Impact significance. I have it very similar to my score for legacy. I still have only a four for the industry, even though this was a summer blockbuster that did much bigger dollars than anybody ever expected. And it got a lot more awards attention than this type of movie would ordinarily get in the nineties. That could still be a possible thing before the Oscars just became either about major blockbuster hits or small indie films that only dad and I see. So even though it has that working for it, I just don't know if it has the support. Yes, Harrison Ford was already a star, so it's not like his star got any brighter. It did allow Tommy Lee Jones to basically have a career off of this one role and become the cop that everybody has... you schlepping into every movie as like a side character for the next 20 years. But how much of that really supports a, a bigger expansion of this type of film? I don't see this film in its at least structure or premise copied a lot other than turning TV shows into movies that happened a lot Turn everybody trying to find the next big thing. So I'll give it a four. I might be persuaded up because I think even talking about it, I've kind of, talked myself up a little bit. The audience, though, I think is a full five. The critic reviews were pretty good at the time. The audience reviews were outstanding. This was a huge movie. The fact that it's number three of 1993. Can either of you, by the way, guess the two movies that finished ahead of it? Just to give you a weird snapshot of 1993 box office. No, I'm terrible with when movies are made. (laughs) Okay, so number one was Jurassic Park. Number two is a Robin Williams film. Number three was Schindler's List. And number five was The Firm. Oh, okay. Number two? Mrs. Doubtfire? Mrs. Doubtfire. That was a great film, though. I enjoyed that film. I loved that film as a kid. Yeah. It actually makes me sad to think about the diversity of movies back then and how everything's a comic book movie now. You know? I, I miss going to the theater to see comedies. Yeah. Well, but just... Okay, uh, across dressing woman, well, excuse me, a dad basically dresses up as a nanny to be closer to his kids, a theme park where you get to go see dinosaurs, a John Grisham novel where Tom Cruise uh, finds out that the mob is really running a bunch of lawyers and has gets them prosecuted for tax fraud. <laughs> and, oh, what was the, the other one? Oh, a World War II Holocaust movie that wins Best Picture. That's your top five finishers for the year. That would never happen now. Not even a chance. Yes, I mean, complete fiction that, I mean, that would never happen, that lawyers would would sully themselves by doing work for, you know, certain... Disreputable groups. Groups for cash, for, for lots of cash. Hmm, boy, hard to believe. Well, and I feel like, you know, Schindler's List would be an Apple TV Plus feels made now. This is Doubtfire would be on Netflix feels made now. Yeah. And it would be a not as good Adam Sandler version. Yeah. Or or Medina. 
<laughs> yeah, okay. So anyway, that's a nine for me. I went the exact same way. I have industry as a four and the public as a five. And, and again, I'll I'll put because I'm older than the two of you. Really? You're older than both of us? I might actually almost be older than the two of you combined. Uh, not quite. Uh, close. No, I'm over 30, and I think he is too. Yeah, yeah. And you're not 60 yet. Well, but it's getting too close. Don't make yourself older than you have to be. I, that's my <laughs> job. Anyway, this had huge legs on HBO and on uh, video rental from the neighborhood or the local rental stores and from uh, Blockbuster Video and such. Because you could always tell the popular movies when you'd walk in and they'd have the shelf of the most recent ones. And if they had 15 of the video or the VHSs of this film, they were having trouble keeping it on the shelf. And I just remember trying to get this film and it was like we had one out of 15 that we could get. So that's how big it really was. I, I couldn't find the statistics on video rentals. But it had to be pretty large. Yeah, so for me, the impact for the industry, I gave it a four. The main reason I did that was because I feel like the character of Gerard was so um, influential in the industry, not just when, in terms of Tommy Lee Jones' career, but also just any kind of like star- sarcastic, snarky cop character that we've seen in like every movie or TV show about cops, I think is very heavily influenced by Gerard. Like you think about like David Caruso's character from CSI Miami, I think is heavily influenced by Gerard. So, so I think that it's, it had a huge impact on the industry just because like this one character just really caught the interest of writers. And then for the public, I also give it a four um, for similar reasons to what you guys said. Like it just was very popular at the time. And I think it's, it really influenced the kinds of movies people wanted to see at the time. So I think I forgot to give the average for the last category, which was 7.33. The average for this category is going to be an 8.67. Novelty, I'm going to turn it over to you first, Terry. Yeah, so I gave it a six for novelty um, because I feel like it it is unique in what it does. Like, I feel like the idea of one character kind of carrying a movie, this is the first time, may not, maybe not first time, but but it feels like an early time that it happened. Like, this feels, I would compare this to, like, Castaway by Tom Hanks in terms of, like, performance by Harrison Ford. And I feel like that's kind of unique for the time. And then I think that there's just a lot of, like, interesting set pieces that made it novel, but, but I don't think, but also I feel like it's very typical of action movies at the time. So that's why I gave it like a six. I know. I I mentioned before that I think that this borrows a lot of structure as a more modern North by Northwest, but with a more thriller mindset instead of a kind of caper tone that I, I feel like North by Northwest has, which I love, but it, this just feels different from that somehow. So that's the the way I would describe it. It keeps most of the movie on a knife's edge extremely deftly without making it too intense for the audience at the same time. And I just don't see a lot of movies being able to have such a good balancing act. I think that's why critics kind of appreciated this one because some of them will go too far to one side or the other. So based partly on its unique structure and plotting. Plus, it's a superbly executed film. You have all-star performances from your two leads. 
in one of the more defining roles of each of their careers, although it's hard for Harrison Ford to have a defining role outside of Han Solo or Indiana Jones, two of the most memorable characters in the history of cinema. But I feel this needs to maybe be bumped up to probably about a 7.5 for me. Well, I have a 5 because ultimately this is very formulaic. I mean, to me, this is a Hitchcock film that was not made by Hitchcock. You have North by Northwest. The circumstances are a little different, but the concept is about the same. The man who knew too much. And from a point of view of how you interplay, ultimately being vindicated by investigation, you have dialogue for murder. And I, I think this is along that same formula. So I can't give it a whole lot of bump ups for novelty. And I'm not even marking it down because it's based on a TV show, because ultimately the movie is vastly different from the TV shows, from what I can tell. The TV show was not syndicated, and so I didn't see it like the comedies of that time frame. But when the last episode of The Fugitive was aired, it was the largest viewed television show up until MASH. It's still in the top five. Yeah. So that's a 6.17 average between the three of us. Classicness, I'll give the category over to you, Dad. Well, I went back and forth with this. It's amazing, though, ultimately. Classicness is something that lives and breathes with uh, the way things are at the present moment in time. Considering the abuse and the number of cases where people have been exonerated by DNA evidence after they had been forced into confessing and everything else by law enforcement and all of the abuses of law enforcement, I had to give this a higher set of marks. I gave it a nine for that reason, because I think it really shows the level of injustice that's becoming more prevalent. And uh, the more we question the integrity of law enforcement and the prosecutorial system, Not to mention the fact that we had at least a few female characters who were strong and important. We had some minorities in the film who helped. They weren't predominant, but still, for the time frame, it was showing some level of growth from where we were, uh, which was a white male-dominated culture. So I went with a nine. I feel very differently when it comes to classic ability or the classicness of this movie. I felt like it just didn't age very well. I feel like there's a lot of things that doesn't play too well in a, in a current environment. And also I feel like a lot of the Gerard scenes really lean into like the, the propaganda kind of stuff that we see a lot on TV now. And I feel like that's something that, you know, when, when you watch it now, like it, it sort of is glorifying the things that the cops are doing, especially the things that Gerard is doing. And, and I feel like that's something that won't play as well. So I actually gave it a three for classicness. I'll probably split the difference between the two of you. I was going to say that you and I approached this category very differently, Dad. I give you some credit on the merits of what you mentioned as your, your strongest argument up. But I also have to kind of balance that out with how we started the show. 
I don't think this movie works as well in 1993 as to now in 2023. Compared with all the technology that we have and the premise and the rest of it, I just don't know if this movie fits in a modern era that is so hyper-connected and has a device in everybody's pocket or hand at all times. And so because of that, I was ready and prepared to kind of drop it down a couple of points. I'll probably go back up a point and split the difference so that the math is a little bit easier, but I'm going to go with a six. (laughs) Uh, Do you need help with the math? No, it's a six average between the three of us. I I made it Uh, that way intentionally. So rewatchability, I'm going to go with a seven. I think this is a comfortable seven. I think it's a rewatchable movie. It's not something that I would gravitate back to a lot. I actually think there are much better rewatchable movies of this period of cinema. One which we're going to discuss next week, which I think is possibly one of the most rewatchable films ever, if not the most rewatchable film. Shawshank's in that category. Pulp Fiction. You've got a lot of them from this time period, but this is a very enjoyable film if you kind of get into the spirit of it. Again, I could probably do without the first 15 minutes and be just fine, kind of like Shawshank again where if you can get past the first night in prison, I think that's where the movie really gathers steam. But even so, uh, I'll go with a comfortable seven. Yeah, I didn't find it. I don't know if I'm going to ever watch this movie again, if I'm fully honest, because I just really did not like the Gerard character because like, I get what they were going for, right? He's, can I curse by the way? Yeah. Oh okay. yeah. Like they were going for like this badass cop that like doesn't care and just kind of like does his job and is really good at his job. But I just found this like lack of caring really unsettling in law enforcement. And like that scene I spoke about specifically, the like no knock warrant scene, it was so jarring for me. So so like I don't know if I could go back and watch this movie. So I actually gave it a four for rewatchability. I went with a seven point five for rewatchability. It's one that I will rewatch. I think it's easier to rewatch if you actually are you using the remote and scanning through channels and you just stop on it and you're in the middle of the film and you don't have to watch the entire film, but just pick up the like the last 45 minutes. You'll sit and watch it and go, wow, this is really good. I think when you have to sit and watch the entire film, it's a little less rewatchable for the problems with the beginning and whatever. So I went with a 7.5 based on that. You know, it's something I will rewatch. And in fact, once in a while, I think it's a nice thing to actually put on and just watch. So that's a 6.17 average between the three of us for that category. Audience scores on this one. We had an 89% for Google users and an 89% for Rotten Tomato users. Dad, would you like to do the math on this one? Uh, Now I'll let you do it. You always seem to, you know. Do a decent enough job? Okay, thank you. I didn't say that. uh, I kind of put words in your mouth, but that's okay because uh, somebody had to. Anyway, for a 8.9, so to recap the categories, we had a 7.33 average for Legacy, an 8.67 for Impact Significance, 6.17 for Novelty, a 6 for Classicness, a 6.17 for Rewatchability, and an 8.9 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 43.24 and putting it on our list between Ocean's 13 and the Kane Mutiny. 
Oh, okay. That sounds right to me. <laughs> yeah. I, I could, I could yeah. buy it. All right. Remaining questions for this one. What changes Gerard's mind to actually start believing Kimball? You know, what I thought changes, I don't, I don't actually think he changed his mind. I think that he was upset that Nichols lied to him and his pride wouldn't let him give that up. And he wanted to like show up Nichols. That's why I think he ultimately believed that it wasn't Kimball. Not because he actually cared anything about Kimball, but because he didn't want Nichols to get away with lying to him. Interesting. The ultimate cynical position. I like it. Mine is, is you can slowly start to see it. Like they go to uh, the hospital and he's outside the uh, prosthetic unit. And all of a sudden the guy walks by, you know, without an arm and he's like, follows him in. And why would he be going here? Unless he's really looking for somebody with one arm. And then, you know, slowly it evolves and he's doing things. And I think the final decision was when he's, calling and he's like why would he be calling and he's purposefully leaving the phone on the hook so we're going to ultimately figure out exactly where he is by a phone trace and then we're going to start questioning these guys and we're going to start going yeah you know there's a lot of things here that don't match up then he starts talking to the police and he asks like what's the motive well uh she was wealthy well he was a doctor uh, well, she was wealthier. Okay. You know, it was seeing some of the flaws in the investigation and such. And I think it developed over time. So my other question is kind of in the spirit of Liberty Valance that the movie didn't bother to say any of the consequences of everything that happened. It just ended the movie right where he's kind of off the hook for all of it. But He's got to face other charges for everything that he did while being a fugitive yet, right? Do you want to tackle this, or do you want me to give the clinical diagnosis? I'll do the fun analysis first, then, before you do the clinical. (laughs) I I feel like, you know, ultimately, everything he did was a consequence of him being wrongfully convicted, right? So I think that there's an argument to be made that really he sh- it's, it's obviously a long, complicated set of dominoes that he, that he that he was that he pushed down, but I feel like he really shouldn't face any real consequences because everything he did was in pursuit of like the justice that the cops didn't pursue to begin with. Like he didn't actually hurt anyone, you know. Like there were fights that he had, but they were all like justified. And then he in fact saved two people's lives because he saved you know the guard where he told them what was actually wrong with him at the hospital in the beginning. And then he saved that small boy later on. Um, so like in my head canon, I like to think that, you know, like they hire hackers. Sometimes you like security experts. I like to think the federal government hired him to like investigate these kinds of cases. All right. Let's get the clinical legal opinion here. <laughs> okay. First off. Okay. Illinois, where most of this took place. I actually, at one time I let my, license laps, but I was licensed in Illinois. So Illinois does or is a state that does not, you have to actually swear out a com- criminal complaint for breaking and entering. So Sykes is in prison. He's not going to be filing any charges against Kimball for breaking into his house. Okay. So that's exonerated. 
most of the rest of this, he should have been, he would technically be charged for escape. He would be technically charged for fleeing uh, in general. To be honest, Nichols should probably be charged because, by the way, how much cash did he have on him? Because he bought an or he bought an apartment, he bought clothes, he bought food, he bought. I mean, I, I would assume the guy had some money, but boy, he must have had a lot of cash on him for him to be able to live that well for several weeks. Well, I thought he said to Gerard that he was only like ninety bucks. Yeah, well, good luck. That ninety bucks went far. I think he had a couple bucks, but I think that it's supposed to be like, but to this doctor, like a couple bucks is like, you know, thousands of dollars. Well, especially coming from tenants practice or whatever it was. All right, continue. But anyway, ultimately, you know that Kimball has the greatest lawsuit against the state of Illinois and Cook County for wrongful prosecution. And so I can just see where a lawyer who knew what he was doing and such cuts a deal where they give him basically the equivalent of like half a year of his salary for practice and all the charges are dropped as part of prosecutorial discretion. And he walks out. Interesting. That's a lot less consequence than I would have thought. Well, let's not forget he is a rich white guy too. I'm sure that's a factor as well. All right, fair enough. In, In the 90s, no less. Yes. Yes, that Clinton era. Anyway, any remaining questions for either of you? No, not for me. I mean, I would have loved to know what his motivation was. Like, why did he care? Was this about his freedom? Was this about, like, did he, was he still in love with his wife? None of that ever came up. (laughs) It just really concerns me that we had no character study into, like, why he was doing these things. Like, obviously, there's, there's, like, the motivation of, I don't want to go back to prison, but we didn't even like get a sense of if that was why he was doing this. Yeah, I think leaving it ambiguous and letting you kind of draw to it was a choice. I, you can disagree or not with the choice, but it, it was a choice. Well, thank you for being on with us, Terry. You have, uh, is it a new book or is it uh, been out for a little while? Yeah, the book will be coming out in August. So it's a for, oh, okay. for so pre-order it's, right now. It's coming up. Yeah. Okay, perfect. So make sure that you pre-order his book. And where can people find your podcast and when does it normally release? Yeah, so it's available everywhere. I do seasons. So like new episodes come out in chunks every few months. Um, Usually like once a, once a like calendar season, I try to do a season. I'll have new episodes coming out next month, like towards the beginning of next month. And I'm going to be going on a live tour actually over the summer. So it's like a book tour but also sort of like a live tour for my podcast. We're going to be doing a number of live episodes at various bookstores. And that'll be posted very soon on my social media. And just to remind everyone, that is Most Writers Are Fans podcast. And the book is Tyranny of the Fae, F-E-Y. Otherwise, we enjoyed having you very much. Thank you for being a part of our show. And we, we appreciated having you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Dad, final thoughts for the week. Uh, no, um, actually I'm really looking forward to doing another, uh, revisit of Few Good Men because it's just so well written. And you can't get enough of that Tom Cruise. 
Uh, sure. <laughs> so I know we talked about it and we've been talking about it and we've been talking about it, but the final episode of the first of all these shows that seem to be ending all at the same time for us is going to be this Friday with the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel getting its last episode. And then uh, Ted Lasso's only got two more. Succession's only got two more. Barry's only got two more. Just going to be this weird period after all of it ends where you're going to kind of feel a little empty that you've gone for the ride. And I just, I really hope that they all can land the plane before all movies and television cease to exist in the next year. Yeah, well, I went through it with MASH, with Cheers, with Seinfeld, and Seinfeld did not land the plane, by the way. <laughs> yeah. It's probably one of the worst closing episodes I've ever watched. I don't know. The, the end of The Sopranos still kind of bugs me a little bit. Mm. But even so, I, I didn't watch that live. That was much later, so I, I wasn't a part of that craze at the time but uh yeah that being said the writer's strike does not look like it's going to be slowing down anytime soon and i have a feeling that it's just going to pick up momentum when one of the other guilds is likely to start striking on top of them whether that's the screen actors guild the producers or the directors or all three i really think that there will be a period of time where there's no new content for like six months I, I don't think there's a big push for new content because we're going into the summer where people are hit and miss with things going on outside and doing activities and such. And sitting and watching television isn't going to be as important. Or they're going to be spending the time, if they do, catching up on stuff that they missed during the year. I don't think it's going to be September till people start going, hey, where's the new stuff? Yeah, I'm sure you're probably right, because especially if the weather kind of keeps up in this really nice kind of mid-70s, low-80s degree weather that we've been having with just a little bit of wind or a little bit of breeze, I can imagine a lot of people being much more outdoors, especially now that the pandemic has officially ended. Uh, I, I think people will start trying to enjoy their lives, and maybe it won't be missed, but there's got to become a tipping point where there will be pressure again. Where's my season six of CSI or whatever? Well, I guess more like season 60, I suppose, but yeah, as I'm planning my vacation, um, they're talking about the fact that hotels are going to be at a premium because everybody is planning on taking either a flying or driving vacation this summer because they haven't been able to. All right. Well, that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. You can't handle the truth. Next week, we are revisiting one of the most rewatchable films of all time, just in time for Memorial Day, with A Few Good Men. Directed by Rob Reiner, written by Aaron Sorkin, starring Tom Cruise, Demi Moore, Kevin Bacon, Kevin Pollock, and Jack Nicholson. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.